0: But, uh, but today, like Pastor Jeff said, we're in Acts chapter 2, and so if you have your Bible, whether it's physical or digital, you have one on your phone, you can go ahead and open that up to Acts 2. We're going to be at the very end of the, um, of the chapter. And today I wanted to start out little, a little bit different. I wanted to talk uh, about what theologians would call the polity of the church. Some of you are going to love this. Some of you are going to be incredibly bored by this. So whichever camp you're in, that's cool. I'm going to talk about it either way. Um, but Church polity is essentially the operational structure of a church and how it functions. Okay, so a few weeks ago uh, we had a vote on our constitution, which is now in place, and and that document is there's a in that document there's a short portion that talks about in a concise way kind of the church. Polity, our church polity, how it is that we function. This is what it says. It says, it's the purpose of these bylaws to provide a stable and effective organizational structure to aid this church in accomplishing its mission. The sections that follow specify a model that keeps the roles of senior pastor, board, staff, and congregation distinct and effective for church health, church growth, and church multiplication. So essentially, the, the the entire document our constitution kind of outlines how it is that we should function but there's four main roles four main distinctives the first one is the role of the congregation and it says the role of the congregation is to serve as the primary ministers of the church and that's that's number 1 so when it, when you're sitting in our congregation if you're a member here or or you're just this is the place that you call home man the primary ministers of the church are you and I think oftentimes we get that backwards. We think, oh, the primary minister of the church is obviously the, pastor, the pastors or the staff or whoever it may be, or just the main volunteers or, you know, whatever. No, the, the primary ministers of the church is the congregation. The second one is the role of our board. The role of the board is to establish guiding principles for the pastor's leadership. The board is my boss right? And they make sure that I am staying on the straight and narrow. Uh, The next one is the role of the pastor. The role of the pastor is to lead the church to accomplish its mission. So I'm not the main, I'm not the primary minister of the church. I'm the one who is leading the primary ministers of the church to accomplish uh, its mission. And then lastly, the role of the staff is to manage the ministries of the church directed by the pastor. And so when you look at kind of our polity, that's kind of a pretty standard overview when it comes to a lot of churches, especially for, for Baptist churches, because outside of the board, there is no governing structure uh, that we have to adhere, adhere, adhere to above our church. So we are largely, we, we function the way that we see fit, and no one there is no one over the top of our board to tell us how it is that, that we should function outside of God and Scripture. Those are the only only two, uh, only two things. And so other denominations, like the Presbyterian denomination, has what they call the Presbytery. And the Presbytery can dictate uh, what the church is and isn't allowed to do, uh, who the senior pastor will be, um, and, uh, and, and like what specific doctrine is allowed and different things like that. And so there is a group of pastors above the churches who then tell, them what, tell the individual churches what it is that, uh, that they should do. Arguably, I would say, Baptists and other denominations that don't have a governing body over the top of a church above them, we have to arguably work harder to maintain unity. We have to work harder to have clear theology and doctrine. And we have to work together because at the end of the day, then our unity and the gospel depends on nobody but us right? At the end of the day, there's no one who's above us outside of God saying, no, this is what you have to do. And that, that, that can be difficult because, because if for some reason you all get really upset at me at some point because I do something stupid or whatever, or you think I do something stupid, y'all can call for a congregational vote. And if you have enough votes, I'm kicked out of here. And that's the way that, that we, we function. We have to have the, the same mind. So what's the point of the discussion on polity? The early church doesn't actually have any sort of governance in place until later on in the book of Acts. But after the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost and after Peter's sermon that we talked about last week, the church is now faced with an issue of the functionality of the church. How is it that the church should function think for a second maybe the best way that you think a church should function and if you grew up in church you grew up a part of a different different denomination or whatever it may be you probably have some ideas about maybe what the role of the pastor should be or the role of the congregation should be or the role of the board or or should we have elders instead of a board or whatever it may be I think there's a lot of things that that kind of go kind of go into it and so there's four main types of church polity, and I'll run through them real quick. The first one's Episcopalian, and so the governance of the church is largely done by, by bishops. And so this is done, of course, in the Episcopalian church. It's done in the Catholic church. It's done in the uh, Eastern Orthodox church, Anglican church as well, where there is one person or a small group of people over the top of many, many different, uh, different churches. It's kind of close to the second form, which is hierarchical. Hierarchical churches uh, are mainly Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists uh, adhere to this as well. And it's close to a, 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 Episcopalian, but much more complex. Okay? It doesn't really matter for our discussion today. The next one is connexial. Uh, Methodists are big on this it's it's they they took that word connection and put an x on it to make it sound cooler um where really all of the churches, and like I said, the Methodists specifically, they don 't have governance over each other, but they govern kind of together. so a group of Methodist churches together will make decisions based on what 's good for those churches in the specific region and then us congregational, this is our structure, we get no oversight from anyone other than uh, the people who are confirmed um, by a congregational vote that 's why it 's called congregational uh, in nature and so while all of these structures still require the church. To be the church, and if I put you to sleep on that, you can wake back up now because we're going to push push forward. Uh, specifically, churches that are congregational, we have to figure it out on our own. We have to look at Scripture, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit, we have to look at God's mandates for us. Because if we don't, we could we could end up in a place that we're not supposed to be. Which means, like I said, we have to be very careful when deciding what our churches should look like, what our doctrine. Should look like and how it is that we function best. In Acts 2 42 to 47, we're going to see a blueprint for how it is that the church should best function. And again, this isn't prescriptive. This isn't the Bible saying this is what you should look like. But if it's good enough for the early church, I think we should probably aim for it as well. Amen. So, Acts 2 42 to 47, this is what it said. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and prayer. Okay, who? Who is it that devoted themselves? Think back to last week and even the week before when Pastor Brian talked about the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a holiday for the Jews. It was a traveling holiday, which means that all of them had to make this big trek into the city center. They had to go to the temple. And so they came to the temple, they had their feast, they did these different things, and they left. Well, when they were there, Peter gives this first message that we talked about last week. Well, first of all, when they're there, Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire over people's heads, right? And then immediately following that, Peter gives the first sermon. And in that sermon, at the end of that sermon, 3,000 people were repented and baptized that day. So there's thousands and thousands of people there. Well, at this point, Pentecost is over. That is over. So people have now returned to their homes Those thousands of people who came to faith probably are up in the hillside, up in the countryside, back on their farms, whatever it is that they were doing, they are back in those places now. And so the number is no longer 3,000 people. This is a smaller group of people specifically. And so these are the people that verse 42 is talking about, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. Okay, so how is it then that the church should be the church? I mean, we could spend our entire time just on verse 42 alone, where it talks about what are the things that they were devoted to, what are the things the early church specifically was devoted to. And so as we go back and kind of chunk this up, we're going to keep going back to verse 42 over and over and over again. But last week, what we talked about, Peter, as he's giving this sermon, one of the things that Peter does is he consistently goes back to Scripture, and that's one of the things that we're going to see the early church do as well on a consistent basis. So Peter, he quoted the Psalms and he talked about David and there's this Davidic, excuse me, there's this Davidic Psalm. <coughs> I apologize. Dave, can you get me a bottle of water from the kitchen, please, or else I'm going to die up here. <coughs> I've got something in my throat, um, but I'll try to push, uh, push forward. So anyway, it's like they, they uh, we're going to pause. It is like I have something stuck in my throat. <clears> throat. So last week we talked about Peter. He's preaching. Peter uses the Psalms. He quotes a Davidic song about Psalm about prophecy, prophecy of the Messiah specifically. And then on top of that, he quotes the, uh, the prophet Joel. And so the early church is consistently going back to Scripture, consistently going back to Scripture. And so that is what they are going to continue to do. And so in Acts 2.42, when it talks about that they devoted themselves to, to Scripture, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Thank you, Dave to the, the teaching of the, the, uh, the apostles. This is something that they're gonna consistently go back to, is they're gonna hear about Jesus. And not just Jesus, there's a whole bunch of different things that they're gonna look, they are going to look towards. There we go. They don't have copies of the New Testament like you do. Okay, they don't have copies, of I mean, most of it hasn't even been written yet at this point, so they don't have any of those copy, copies, but they do have the Old Testament. They have the Hebrew scriptures in different pieces. They would have had what's called the Tanakh, Okay, and the Tanakh, it makes up the Torah, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. They have the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and they have the uh, uh, Ketuvim, which is the historic and the poetic books of the Old Testament. So they have all of these things. They would have been familiar with all of these things, which is one of the reasons that Peter is able to quote the prophet Joel, because he would have been familiar with that. And so the apostles beyond those things probably would have spent time, a lot of time, talking about Jesus and how it is that he has helped kind of transform their lives, reminding them of his teachings and showing, him, showing those people the, the points in the Tanakh, that Jesus Christ the Messiah, just like Peter did in his sermon where the Tanakh is pointing to the Savior. And on top of all of that, they perform miracles just like Jesus did. The book of Acts has tons of different miracles in it. The apostles are, are putting forth. And so these miracles are largely going to, going to authenticate what it is that they are saying that, uh, that those things are true. So there has to be something that brings us together as people in the same way that brought those early Christians together as people, as a church body. We're not a movie club. We're never going to be a movie club. If you think we exist for your entertainment and your enjoyment, we don't. That's not our goal. If you want to do that, go watch a movie on Sunday mornings, okay? There's much better options out there than listening to me. Okay, but we're not, we're not a movie club, we're not a film and television club, we're not, we're not like an exercise group or a cooking club, we're not brought together because we're all from the same country or have the same languages or we even have the same hobbies or interests or nationalities or anything else that unites us. Nothing else will unite us, those people in this room for Christ, except for Christ Jesus and his word. That's it. And that's the same thing that was true of the early, uh, the, the early church. And so that means when we get together as Christians, we can talk about all of those other things. I want to know who you're rooting for in the Super Bowl as long as it's the 49ers. I want to know what's going on. you got to work it in. You know what I mean? Like it's got to be kind of organic um, and just kind of work it in. But that being said, I want to know what's going on with your family I want to know about your health issues. I want to to know these different things that are happening in your life, but all the while those things are happening, I also want to make sure that we are talking about God. We're talking about Jesus and what it is that is happening in your life because of what Jesus has done for you. Hey, that's an important part of it. And it's not like we, as soon as you like cross the threshold of our door, we only want you quoting scripture to each other. Like that's not the case at all. But we want to make sure that our central focus is on, is on Jesus and is on his gospel specifically. And so we're coming to learn about him. We're coming to see how the scripture points to him, to confess our sins to him, to receive his grace in our lives, to remember his sacrifice on the cross, right? To, to celebrate his resurrection, to celebrate his ascension and to be a, in a relationship with him, to know him. There is someone who unites us despite all of our differences. We gather around Jesus and we gather around his word specifically. And that's what the early church did. We, and beyond that, we gather around Jesus, we gather around his word. But the next thing that the early church did really, really well is they were able to simply just do life together. So if you're a note taker, you can write that down. Do life together. That's what the early church did incredibly well. Christianity is not just a Bible study, right? Christianity specifically is a lifestyle. It's something that you have to walk out on a regular basis. Acts two forty-two, and then it's kind of 44 to 46. It said they devoted themselves, of course, to fellowship. And then 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, the church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is indeed a fellowship. People doing life together. This word for fellowship in verse 42, it's the Greek word koinonia. You're probably familiar with it because there's a rather large church on the other side of town called koinonia. It's not a word that they made up. It literally means fellowship and specifically fellowship of believers. And beyond that, if you take some of the secondary, um, uh, sec- secondary definitions as well, it means communion and, and participation and sharing. And you see what that looks like in verses 45 and 46 in this text. These people are willing to sell property. They're willing to sell possessions to help each other out. They're spending time together daily worshiping the Lord. It's absolutely incredible to be able to see. In the 12th century, there's an English monk named Alred, and he called doing life together spiritual friendship. Our church, FBH, First Baptist Hanford, has set one of our main engines for discipleship and evangelism as a group of people who come together to be equipped in in groups and studies and then go out and use that knowledge to help change King's County for the kingdom of God. One of the really fascinating things that we see, and it's one of my favorite things to be able to see as well, is we'll hear about someone like getting sick. And we won't hear about it for like two or three weeks after they get sick or two or three weeks after they have a baby or something where they would like need some sort of like, hey, the church can help you. We can support you in some way. Let us pray for you. Let it, you know, whatever it may be. And we don't hear about it till weeks later. And so then we call, we're like, hey, we just heard, we're so sorry. Is there anything that we can do for you? Can we pray for you? Whatever it may be. And my favorite answer is when actually, you know what? Uh, Our small group has largely come alongside of us, so they gave us meals. They've been praying for us. They actually took took us to a doctor's appointment or uh, so on and so forth. Why? Because they're doing life together. As our church continues to grow, which is exciting to be able to see, we don't just wanna grow in width, we wanna grow in depth, and not just depth of our faith, which is incredibly important, but depth in the relationships with the people that we have. As you look at the early church, you see these relationships. Their lives aren't, aren't just, hey, are you going to be there on Wednesday night? Their lives are completely and totally intertwined with one another. There is a communal sense to what is happening on a regular basis in the early church. And so we're supposed to spend time with each other, but we're supposed to care for each other, be willing to sacrifice for one another, just like they did earlier, give generously to each other, share a common life. And all of this is in response to Jesus doing those things for us in the first place. Because church isn't about you. It's about the kingdom of God. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about independence. The Bible says a whole lot about community though, especially the early church. Anybody ever watch that show uh, Shark Tank? Probably pretty familiar with the show Shark Tank, right? It was like a mega hit for a while. Um, And uh, the show Shark Tank, and these are like billionaires, right, who want to invest in these startups and these people's ideas and that sort of thing in hopes that they can become multi-billionaires. And so one of the things they say regularly on that show is the most valuable commodity that I have is my time, which to be fair is really easy when you're a billionaire to be able to say that, right? Because you're like, I don't care about money. My most valuable commodity is, is my time. But Christ calls us to give our most valuable commodity to one another. That's what fellowship looks like. And to be clear, we're already doing fellowship when we gather for worship, Okay, this is part of the fellowship of believers. Or when we, you know, when you play games or when you, when you eat a meal, when we do a Bible study or a hike or join a small group or a equipping group or visit each other in the hospital, it's all fellowship. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, we might also admit that our fellowship can kind of be a bit, a bit pre-planned. All of it can be a little bit actually orchestrated. Like, I'm happy to fellowship with people once my house is clean, right? I'm happy to fellowship with people when a meal is made, I'm happy to fellowship with each other or or with other people when when the baseboards are are dusted, right? Like, I'm good at that point, but fellowship really is more like welcoming a church friend into experience life with you, even when there's a pile of dirty dishes in the sink, even when there's a pile of clothes sitting next to the laundry, and even when your kids aren't listening to anything that you have to say at the moment. It is an unpolished version of ourselves, and not that you shouldn't do chores around your house or anything like that. Guys, don't walk away assuming that's what I said this morning, okay? Pastor Peter said I didn't have to mow the lawn. Um, But fellowship, there's an authenticity that comes with it, right? Fellowship is when your parent dies or you're sick and a church friend comes over to take care of you. Fellowship's getting up early for breakfast with other brothers and sisters in Christ to pray and confess your sins to one another. Fellowship is seeing each other on good days and bad days, which is probably more like how your family sees you or how your kids see you than how other perfect, polished people would see you. And that's how the community of believers is supposed to function. That's why the people of the congregation are the primary ministers of the gospel in our church. We recognize that there is no way that our pastoral staff could ever achieve actual fellowship with every single one of you. There's far too many of you and far too few of us. And so fellowship should happen for everyone and with everyone in the community of believers. And I think we can all agree with that. But there's an interesting thing about that word koinonia that I shared. Actually, the root of that word koinonia is koinos which means common but if you continue to look at it it's common but it also means profane and it also means impure and so i dig it in a little bit more and and we recognize there's something rich and meaningful and loving about church fellowship but can also mean something that's profane and something that's impure and so acts two this section that we're going through hear me this is like the model church if you were looking for a church and, you're like, and, and so you came across that on a website and, and you went there and you're like, they're doing all of these things together and this is perfect and they're unified and all like, like, this is great. I want to go to that church. The reality is, is the Acts 2 church didn't remain the blueprint, like the gold standard for church for very long. Actually, as you continue to look through the book of Acts, we can see that, man, the fellowship of believers consistently just kind of gets messed up. You have to wait three chapters and then you get to a chapter about Ananias and Sapphira in chapter five, and we're going to preach about it in a few weeks. But Ananias and Sapphira, if you looked at them, you'd be like, man, those people are great. They gave a bunch of money to the church, but they lied to the church. And because of the fact they lied and they lied separately, one gets struck down dead, they get dragged out. The other comes in, lied again, struck down dead, gets dragged out. Why? Because there was an impurity there. They weren't actually in it for the fellowship of believers. They felt like they needed to lie to them and lie about what they were doing on behalf of God. And I just think that oftentimes, like, we kind of fall into that same camp as well. Is that we kind of polish ourselves up to make people think that we're doing more for the kingdom of God than we actually are. They're like, yeah, I did, I did this, and yes, brother, right? We, our language changes, and how it is that we talk. But Acts 5, there's already impurity. There's also a whole Jerusalem council in Acts 17 because Jewish believers don't know how to incorporate with Gentile believers. Actually, one of the early church fathers, Peter, the same dude who preached last week, I preached last week, the same guy who preached a sermon in the scripture from last week, that Peter, he, at one point, he's like, yep, we should eat with all of the Gentiles and eat all the things that the Gentiles eat, and then next thing you know, he doesn't want to sit down at a table with them for fear of being defiled, right? There are issues that happen in the early church in the same way that there's issues that happen as, like, like as a part of a body of, of believers, and there's always pain, and there's always dysfunction that has to be dealt with, as you can see. It always happens. It already happened, even as the apostles are still in charge. And so if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, I just need to find the perfect church with no dysfunction, with no disunity, where everybody's on the same page regarding doctrine, where everybody agrees with me in, in, in my preferences and how we should approach church. Like, if you find that church, please let me know. Because I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist and it hasn't existed since the very like, like very inception of the church when they wrote this in Acts 2, 42 to 47. But it didn't last for very long. The fellowship of believers is a fallen, broken fellowship. Why? Because we're fallen and broken people. But we rally around one thing and we center on one thing, which is Jesus and his gospel. And so as long as those things remain at the center and we continue to seek unity, good things will happen. There's a book that I had to read in seminary called How to Find a Church, Seven Steps to Becoming Part of a Spiritual Family, right? And the, the first step is preparation. Prepare your heart. Pray about it. Where is it that God is leading you to? And then hopefully your Google search shows you where it is that God is leading to you. The first step is set, is preparation. The second step is visit. And then it goes on, and then it gets to the last step, step seven. And step seven is persevering through the pain. It's not exactly a gold standard for churches. Like as, as like we put our website together, can you imagine if we're like, hey, come be a member here and persevere through the pain? That's a terrible look. This is what he writes. The author says, you will get hurt. He says, I actually think this is part of God's plan for the church. Though that does not excuse the one who causes the pain, he wants us to learn to forgive and show grace. And this is where it takes true grit, a staunch stomach and a test of faith. You need to stick it out. When you've done this step, you have found your spiritual family. Life together is incredible, uh, has incredible times of encouragement and has incredible times of joy. But even as you look at your family, It's got bruises, and it's got frustrations, and it's got people that, frankly, you don't want to sit by at Thanksgiving. But you go back year after year. Why? Because they're your family. And we need to do our best to be unified in that. And we stick it out. Because we love Jesus and each other and unity is paramount to the church functioning properly. So we gather around God's word, we do life together in three, we eat and we receive communion. Man, can I just say like Baptist churches, we love to gather around a table. There are some things in the Christian faith that we are called to that is not super exciting. That like I'm not excited about, like I don't know, suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God. Like it's not on the top of my list of things that I'm like, yes, that's what I get to do today. But man, when it talks about they just they, they devoted themselves to breaking bread, I'm like, okay, amen. Am I right, church? Let's go. I can break some bread. And food is a big deal in the first church plan. Acts 2, 42 and 46. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. In 46, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And so the early church, they would eat together, they would celebrate communion as part of the meal. It was this like continued time of fellowship that was focused around Christ, aided by food, right? Uh, The whole reason we offer food on Wednesday nights is because food is such an important part of simply doing life together. Like, Like all of our Wednesday night programming really starts at 6.30. And you guys know this, you don't have to come for the 5.30 to 6.30 meal. Some of you do, some of you don't. But the reason we kick it it off that way is, one, because it's at 5.30 and we want to make sure you guys are fed and provide a good, cheap, fantastic meal that our, our kitchen crew does every single week. But on top of that, we want you to just simply have the opportunity to sit at a table and talk about how life is, like how life is. I know there's some of you who even come for the food and don't stay for small groups afterwards, and you think you're not in a small group, but the truth is you sit at the same table with the same people and talk about your life every single week. So even if you don't think you're in a small group, you are 5.30 to 6.30 while you're chowing down on food. Even today, as you're watching the Super Bowl, Don't be afraid to take some time, maybe during halftime, because we all know nothing good happens in that 30-minute span of TV anyway, but take some time to ask people about how they're doing in life, in faith, with their kids, at work. It is so much easier to have a conversation with people in life over a good meal, and the early church excelled at that incredibly well, and beyond that, they received communion every single time that they ate together. It's just part of what they did. When Jesus said in the upper room, hey, do this in remembrance of me. That's what they did. And it's one of the reasons we're committed to it. That's our tradition for the first Sunday of every single month. We're gonna receive communion together. Same thing that the early church did. And then fourth, the next thing the early church did really well is they prayed together. Over the course of the last six six weeks, we've talked a ton about prayer. A ton about prayer. And we're gonna continue to talk about prayer, because we are like, like that is what the body of Christ should be doing. And so in Acts two forty two and forty seven, it says they devoted themselves to prayer, and then forty seven praising God. We see the early church praying together and worshiping God. There's an old uh, saying that pastors used to say a lot: "A marriage that prays together stays together." Right? You guys heard that adage? Well, a church that prays together stays together. Gene Getz, he says this, the hallmark of Western civilization has been rugged individualism. Because of our philosophy of life, we're used to the personal pronouns, I and my and me, and we've not been taught to think in terms of we and our and us, and consequently, we, in, we individualize many references to corporate experience in the New Testament, thus often emphasizing personal Prayer. The facts are that more is said in the book of Acts and the epistles about corporate prayer, corporate learning of biblical truth, corporate evangelism, and corporate Christian maturity and growth than about personal aspects of these Christian disciplines. Don't misunderstand. Both are intricately related, but the personal dimensions of Christianity are difficult to maintain and practice consistently unless they grow out of a proper corporate experience on a regular basis. We talk, like at the end of the day, oftentimes we say, hey, make sure this week you read your Bible, you pray, you go talk to people about Jesus, and we immediately think that this is like a thing that I should be doing by myself. And that is a relatively modern construct of how it is that faith was acted out. Because we all have our individual Bibles. When there weren't individual Bibles, people would have to come to church, like you would come to a building like this and then I would sit and I would just read scripture. That was the sermon. It made my job a lot easier. Like they would sit and read the book of Genesis. They would sit, I mean, that, that is the vast majority of what they would do. And so now, everybody, all of us have our own Bibles, all of us have our New, new Testament, we've got different translations, we have whatever information that we want. And we think to ourselves, okay, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to read my Bible by myself and read it, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to pray by myself, and I'm going to commune with God and hear me, those are good things, and those are helpful things, and I hope you're doing those things. But I think what has happened is... In modern, specifically Western Christianity, we've lost that idea of the corporate nature of the church. Specifically when it comes to prayer, the fellowship of believers should pray together, not just by ourselves. And this has been a highlight of my year so far, committing in a very real and practical way to praying and petitioning God to hand over Kings County into the kingdom of God. I love that. Thursdays at 1115 Or our monthly prayer meeting on the last Sunday of the month, women's prayer. Last Tuesday, we had our first women's prayer meeting. It's Tuesday at 10 a.m. No one should show up at Tuesday at 10 a.m. That time doesn't make sense. That day doesn't make sense for most of you. We had a room full of ladies praying and petitioning the Lord. It was absolutely incredible to see. There's a peace that comes with it, but more importantly, a manifest connection to the God of the universe. I mean, if we know that we have the Holy Spirit in us, if we call Jesus Lord and Savior of our lives, why wouldn't we lean into what it is that he has for us as a community as well? So how do we church together? How do we do this? Well, we've talked through them. One, we gather around God's word. Two, we do life together. Three, we share meals and we take communion. Four, we pray together. So the question then is, is what is the fruit of all of this? What does this lead to? what's the outcome and not just not just for FBH again this isn't just an FBH growth strategy so we can get bigger and all these things like for the kingdom of god the capital c church what should it look like well let's read the last the last verse 47 praising god and enjoying the favor of all the people and the lord added to their number daily those who were being saved what's the outcome of this type of community of this type of fellowship growth that's what happens there's three kind of outcomes that we see in these verses, specifically if you start at verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and then go into 47. But verse 43, the word awe is a Greek word, it comes, or it comes from the Greek word phobos, it's where we get the word phobia from, um, and it can mean kind of fear or terror, or the way that it's used here, reverence. Some people are just plain afraid. But I think what happens is, is these apostles and these, these, these followers of the apostles, they see miracles and they see this communal church family and it just kind of terrifies them. But it terrifies them in a good way. They recognize how, how incredible, how powerful, how real God is in this moment. And because that, they want to continue to serve him in awe and wonder and reverence. That's why they do what they do. I don't know about you, but there's oftentimes that I get, like, as I'm reading the book of Acts or I'm reading New Testament stuff, and I'm seeing all of these miracles happen. And I just think, like, man, if I saw miracles happen like that all the time, church would be a whole lot easier. Like, following God would be a whole lot easier. If, God, can you just throw us a miracle every once in a while? Like, can you just raise someone to the dead from the dead real quick? And everybody would come and worship you. Well, two things. One, that's not necessarily true because that happened, and... People still didn't believe in Jesus. Okay, But the second thing is, I think there's a very real explanation for why it is that we don't necessarily see those miracles anymore, and because of that, we don't have the reverence of God. Like I said last week, okay, I am not a cessationist, and a cessationist means that at the end of the apostolic era, when the apostles died, that all of the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts prophecy, tongues, healings, that sort of thing, all of those things went away. That would be a cessationist. I'm not a cessationist. I'm in the other camp. I think God can still do today what he's done forever, okay? And so that being said, I also think that God expresses his power in places that need to understand his power. We have something better than miracles, We have God's special revelation to us. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ that all of you have on your phones, that you have sitting on your lap probably right now, or on a dusty Bible on your shelf. And so because of that, I think oftentimes you hear about miraculous things that are happening in countries that are maybe underdeveloped or countries that maybe haven't been reached People groups who who still need to hear the gospel for the first time that you see signs and wonders and miraculous things happening over there why because the fact that they don't have as uh, uh, like the gospel isn't as readily accessible to them as it is to each and every one of us now hear me I think God performs miracles every day here in America elsewhere internationally domestically all the different things like like I truly believe that but I think that God's power is shown where people need to see God's power. But people in third world countries, those unreached groups, they don't have the same ability that we do. Did you know that on average, the average American will hear the gospel 300 times a year? 300 times a year. We are saturated with the gospel. You think that's a lot? Go to Mexico. The average Mexican hears the gospel 700 times a year. Why don't we see miracles? Because we know who God is and we should respond accordingly. There are people who don't necessarily know who Jesus is and need to see that power of God. And so they were in awe of God. And so because of the fact they were in awe of God, they're doing all of these things. And then beyond that, in verse 47, it says that they enjoyed the favor of the people. Favor is kind of the same word as grace. It's the same word used, but people were amazed and people were favorable towards them. Why? I think this is because their community looks so much different than any other community. Any other community they had experienced looked different, giving their stuff away, making sure that everyone had everything they needed. The result of our community, FBH specifically, the result of our community should be the growth of the church because of how well we love each other. John 13, 35 says it. It says that outsiders will know that we are Christians by our love. And I talked about this a few weeks ago, but oftentimes when we read that verse, we think, oh yeah, people outside the church will know that we're Christians because of how well we love people outside the church. If you look at that verse in context, that's not what it's saying. It's saying people outside the church will recognize that we're Christians by how well we love people inside the church how well our community functions together, how unified we are together, how well we do life together and gather around his word together and eat together and pray together and receive communion together. The growth happens not because of how well we do outreach, it's important, but it doesn't happen because of how well we do outreach, it happens because of how well we love each other. It happens because of how unified we are together because community is transformative and people want to be part of something that is real and transformative and the gospel should shape that in us. But the last result of all these things and the best result of all these things is faith. Verse 47, it says, or it, it talks about that, that every day more and more people are coming to faith, faith specifically in Christ and joining the church family. And the result of that is a church family studying scriptures together, doing life together, sharing meals, communion, praying, all those different things. And there's something that's so unique and distinct and wonderful about them that others can't help but come to faith in Christ. It's not that they don't evangelize and witness. They do. But how they posit, like how they live, and how they live together positively influences their witness. I've had conversations with people oftentimes who are like, well, I would share my faith with this guy, but man, at work, I talk a completely different way than when I'm at church. Like, don't you realize that this hurts your witness? Don't you realize the way that you act hurts your witness? If you're here today and you think that your faith is simply about you, And this is the crux of the entire thing. If you're here today and you think your faith is simply about you, then you are sadly mistaken. Our faith is communal. It's meant to be done as a fellowship of believers. It's supposed to be shared with people both in and out of the church. That's why we want you to share your faith. Because our community... But the recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord and our Savior is a transform, it should be a transformative community as we keep saying, look what Jesus did for us, look what Jesus did for us over and over and over again. And we want to be a place where people who are experiencing hopelessness can experience hope. That's what the blue ping pong balls are out there for. We want you to share your faith because we want you to give people hope in their lives, the same hope that, that we have. And we also have the white ping pong ball so you can invite people to church and we want you to be confident that when you invite people to church that they're gonna come and they're gonna feel accepted. They're gonna feel like, man, this is a place where where there's hope and they're gonna be kind. I got donuts out there and my kids can come in and, and be safe and sing some songs and learn about Jesus too and I'm gonna come and I'm gonna be challenged. I'm gonna be told the truth. And then I can leave that place, and, and we're going to follow up appropriately, but we, like, we want to be a community that is just like unified and loves each other so well that people, they, like, they have no other option, but to also want to be a part of that community. This week, that's my, that's my prayer for our church, that we would be a church defined by our love, so much so that people not only, that, that not only do people want to be a part of our community, but beyond that, that you couldn't help but invite them in. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And God, I pray, I am thankful for this community of believers. And the fact that we want to do fellowship well. We want to honor you with our lives. We want to just exemplify you. And God, I pray that other people would see your community, would see your body because of how unified we are and how well we love one another. God, and that starts with us simply focusing on what matters most. Your son. that we say thank you to him and honor him for what he did in our lives. It's the recognition of the gospel. The recognition of the fact that we're all sinners in need of a savior. But we recognize that Jesus came and he died on the cross so we wouldn't have to die that same spiritual death. That he took that on and it's because of that, that we have fellowship. It's the one thing that we have in common. And so Father, for, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, for those people who are maybe in here who have not yet said yes to you for the first time, or maybe they need to get right with God, I don't know what it is, you do. But if that's, if that's you this morning, I wanna give you a chance right now to respond to be part of the family of god by making a profession of faith and you can simply pray after me in the quietness of your heart say father a i admit that i'm a sinner in need of a savior and i repent of that sin but b i believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me for my sins yesterday today and tomorrow And see, Father, I choose to follow you. And part of following you is seeking unity in the church. By having love for those people in the church. And by inviting people into our community as well. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.